Hello and welcome to the show and an episode where we ask ourselves a tricky question. How can we get our tech teams closer to the business and help them realise it's not a separate thing at all, but they're actually part of it? Speaking of getting closer to business, maybe I can get closer to yours. This episode's sponsored by One Night Consulting, and spoiler alert, that's me. I started One Night Consulting because I've seen variations of the same problems plaguing product companies and I've seen them again and again. If you're looking to get an independent diagnosis of your business with actionable insights, or you're hiring product people or coaching the ones you've already got, you can go to onenightconsulting.com to book a call with me and see if I can help you out. That's onenightconsulting.com. You can check the show notes for more details. Back to an episode where we'll have a conversation about conversations, delve into the little-known craft of action science, talk about test-driven development for people, and the importance of constructive tension to get good business results. If you want to find out how to make your tech teams insanely profitable, stay tuned to One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Douglas Squirrel, or Squirrel to his friends. Squirrel's a long-time tech leader, consultant, coach, agile enthusiast, and author who says he's been fired from every CTO role he's ever had. So you can click the red button to hire him now, as I'm presuming he's immediately available. Squirrel's the co-author of 2020's Agile Conversations, a book that aims to help tech teams collaborate and have difficult discussions. Not that us tech and product types ever have any of those. And he's here tonight to talk to me about how to make tech teams insanely profitable and how productive conflict can lead to faster delivery. Hi, Squirrel. How are you tonight? I'm doing great, Wayne. You can just keep talking. That sounds super. <laughs> but let's get started. So you are a director and presumably the founder of Squirrel Squared. Well, it's really just me. So I'm a consultant and there's just me. You're talking to my people. So you are Squirrel Squared. So what problem do you, as Squirrel Squared, solve for the world? Well, the technology teams are the, the probably the, the greatest, that have the greatest leverage of any human organization that has ever existed. And we tend to use them to, to have backlog meetings and to <laughs> um, uh, hold uh, endless discussions that don't go anywhere. And we're not writing code that could change the world. And we should do that. And we should make a huge profit doing it. So your goal is to go and help teams get away from just going through backlogs and actually be super successful. So your website claims that you've been making tech teams insanely profitable since 2001. So yep. that makes you nearly as old as me. But I guess I have to ask, do tech teams really need to worry about profits or should they just be concentrating on the tech? You touched on it a little bit just now about like not wanting to just be backlog merchants, but do they really need to worry about the money? They absolutely do. And when I see a tech team get really connected to the business outcomes for the business, whatever those might be, whatever the profit is that the business has, when I see that, there's suddenly this huge flood of productivity, huge flood of opportunity that happens. Yeah, that's interesting because something that I've wrestled with in the past in product companies specifically, and obviously there could be a different kind of paradigm if you're talking about more service or consultancy-led companies that are maybe working on individual projects and then, you know, they're billing by the hour or something like that. But in product companies that's where you've That's a really got... dumb idea, by the way. They, shouldn't, they should stop <laughs> billing by the hour. 100%. But in product companies, obviously, you have long-lived tech teams that are working and working on a product and, and then that's presumably then being taken out to the world, either product-led growth style or it's being taken out to the world by salespeople, and then they're going out there and, and selling stuff and generating the revenue that comes back directly themselves. Mm -hmm. But unless we're literally splitting everyone, like all of the tech teams into individual product lines, then you, know, you can directly draw like a line of revenue to the development efforts that happened on that product line. 
So much of that still feels very dependent on sales. So for example, a crappy sales team can still fail to sell a great product. A great sales team can, to some extent, sell a not great product. So when you go into these companies, are you just helping the tech teams or are you also touching on that kind of go-to-market and sales side to kind of wrap it all up and make it all work? See, I see it as one unit. So uh, I don't see these things as separate. Right. So uh, yes, I'm very frequently doing that. The person I was just coaching before I jumped on this podcast with you is someone who is finding that um, being isolated within his tech team is really backfiring on him, that uh, he's not getting the attention from the rest of the organization that he deserves and that the organization needs. I mean, he has call centers that are down. He has opportunities lost to convert customers, and he knows about it, but nobody else does. My coaching to him is that he needs to get out of the IT bubble, and he needs to be talking, <laughs> for example, to the CFO about the effect on the bottom line of having the network down once a week. And once he does that, that's going to drive the attention and the benefits that he's looking for and he's frustrated by not having from his tech team. But you say you've worked with 150 plus companies. You're an advisor to a few as well. But when you go into these companies, like how many of them are already doing something kind of like that? Or on the flip side, like how many of them are just completely the opposite of that and need substantial surgery? I'm sure that there's a spectrum, but like if you had to kind of put a finger in the air, like how many of those are already trying to do that? Because you hear a lot about IT service mentality, right? You just touched on it yourself. Mm -hmm. Seems to be really common, especially in bigger companies. Like, do you see that? Uh, uh, not only do I see it, I can think of very few who already have a profit focus for their technology organizations. It's surprising to me for exactly the reason you just said. <laughs> it's usually the biggest expense, right? The at least per person. Yeah. Engineers are paid much more than, than many other people in the organization who ironically contribute a lot more to profit. Not because the engineers can't, but because the organization has set itself up to measure activity rather than outcome. And when you start measuring the outcome, you discover that a lot of the activity is wasted. Yeah. And I tell people to do things like delete their backlogs, iterate much more quickly, and get their teams focused on the features that drive profit rather than being focused on uh, the back end or the front end or uh, data science, something that's very technically minded which doesn't drive that outcome. And when they start, and almost no one is doing that to start with, when they start, they get huge benefits. When you're talking about profit, though, obviously that could be short-term profit, like the cliche sales quarterly target type profit, where you've just got to get as much money over the line in as short of time as possible to hit your quota. Is it that type of profit you're talking about? Or are you talking about the longer term, for the good of the many, let's make lots of money from everyone type of profit? Because you could take profits. I mean, either of those two things. And you could argue, I guess, that focusing on the quarterly targets, for example, is a real enemy to innovation because you're always prioritizing stuff to give you that kind of adrenaline shot. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of thinking that limits people. So when they say, look, should we do short term or long term? I say, that's a company strategy issue. And company strategy is very important. I work with teams, uh, entire executive teams on the company strategy as well. I just did a workshop on this. And the crucial thing is that they need to pick. There are companies for whom the short-term profit is absolutely the number one thing. Yeah. I have a client who spent this summer doing a huge technology overhaul, which I helped them with, and now they're reaping the profits at Christmas because that's when they make half their sales. So they're focused on how do we increase the conversion rate in the next hour, right? They're very short-term focused because yeah. it's Christmas right now when we're recording this. However, I have other clients who are uh, thinking about how three, five years out, I think they're thinking too far. They, they can't predict that far. But their horizon is very different. 
The point is that the technology strategy almost always is completely out of sync with that company strategy. Yep. And the technologists are in the ivory tower inventing wonderful, fantastic <laughs> new things, which have no relationship to whether it's short-term or long-term what the company actually needs. Now, I'll buy that. But one follow-up to that and something that I've been wrestling with a little bit recently, and not 100% sure if I believe it myself, but want to float it with you since we're talking about the money. Whether the idea of having quarterly targets, for example, is the enemy of that long-term thinking in general. Because obviously, for example, we're sitting there saying we want quarterly OKRs that are based on moving certain numbers. Okay, cool. And there's obviously the sales targets, there's the quotas that the sales team need to hit, which obviously they're bonused on. And in some cases, they get fired if they don't hit. So there's a really big incentive for those people to prioritize things from a sales perspective that do hit those numbers. But you could argue, and again, you said just now that obviously it depends on the company, but you could argue that making those big long-term bets. So let's say, for example, if we wanted to, the metaverse, Mm -hmm. let's imagine we needed to sink like a year or two of development into something. But if we're always chasing that short-term revenue, because that's what the company needs to stay alive, are we ever going to be able to make those big long-term bets? Or do we, as you say, just have to pick and kind of accept our fate? Well, I think that I'm going to reject the assumption in the question with respect, because everybody makes that assumption. (laughs) I reject the idea that you need to sink two years into the metaverse, for example. And not because the metaverse is or isn't a good idea. I'll reserve judgment on that one. (laughs) The point is that these lengthy projects are what kill kill IT teams. That's what makes things very difficult. What you want is imperfect indicators. Sometimes people call them leading indicators, but I emphasize that they're imperfect, i.e. they don't give you all the information that you need, but they do give you a guide to whether what you're doing is helpful. Yep. And you want feedback. Ideally, every day, I often teach teams how to deliver new software that's valuable, that gives them a further movement on their imperfect indicator every single day. Yep. But certainly, at least every week, every two weeks, you want to be able to take a reading and say, hey, this metaverse stuff, it seems to be working. We've got some people who are interested. We've got people who are starting to pull out their wallets and use it. Now, take an aside and say, I'm not sure who those people are, but if you can find them <laughs> and they're willing to pay you for it, then you've got information and you do not have a multi-year project. Yeah, You do not have this huge sunk cost and then a conflict between that and your quarterly outcomes. A quarterly is too slow. We ought to have weekly outcomes. Uh, so far, so agile manifesto, but I completely agree, by the way, this idea that you have to put everything into a big long-term project is yeah, it's the death of being able to make any good decisions because you're just throwing so much and you're kind of getting into a like a, a mine cart and just going down the track rather than you know just stopping and learning as you go so big fan of that but I'm assuming that of these 150 plus companies that you've worked with that there's a bunch out there maybe larger companies a bunch that are smaller companies I mean I don't know what your mix is but not all of those companies are even going to conceptually have any like that's not going to jive with them at all well, because they've got this old school way of thinking or but they hire me to change that. Ah, they so... hire me because they want to they want to do something different. Companies that don't want that 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 really do want this uh, as you call it old school approach to giant projects that uh, are on a, a path to nowhere. I often say it's like uh, getting in a rocket ship and going to Mars. Um, you might as well <laughs> no, just... don't don't pick on Elon. Don't pick oh, on Elon. Well, I don't care who it is, but what you have to do if you want to get to Mars right now with current technology is get in the ship, bring a book, bring a lot of books, because you're not going to be doing anything, right? You just wait, and then eventually you, you bang, bang into Mars, and there you are. However, what we really want is the Starship Enterprise, because you notice in any uh, science fiction story that's worth its salt, 
the, the drama would be missing, right? If you were just in the ship reading the book, nothing would be happening. <laughs> but what happens is they're headed to Epsilon one, two, three, and suddenly they discover that um, Beta Zoid number three is much more interesting. So they, they change, right? They go someplace different yep. halfway along because they're getting feedback all the time. They look out the window and they see the stars and they say, oh, wait a minute, that one looks more interesting. Let's go over there. There seems to be something to do. And that's the sort of thinking that companies need to have. And far, far, far too many of them don't take advantage of the fact that technology allows them to do that. Yeah. But I think also one thing I've seen in the past, and I'm sure you've seen as well, is this idea that maybe the people that don't get that, I mean, it sounds like those aren't the people that are going to hire you, but the people that don't get that, they have this idea in their mind that what they're really looking for is predictability and a plan and just knowing what's going to happen. And obviously, sales teams like to have plans so that they know what they can pitch to people. But again, I guess... Stop planning. Well, <laughs> No, I mean it, really. No, I agree. I have a whole concept called the tilted slider. You remember, and it used to be you know, radios and, and um, uh, machines like that. You're old enough, I think, to, to remember these, that, that you'd have oh, a physical yeah. thing. You, you moved along, and it, it took you to the right radio station, right? It slid along a little track. Yep. And that kind of control is what people try to manipulate, a slider that they can move to one end or the other for their predictability or their productivity of their tech team. And the problem is, the reason that the, tilter, the slider is tilted is you could push it all the way up to productivity. And startups, for example, very small startups often have that. And people will come to me and they'll say, oh, you know, I remember the old days when there were three of us in a room where we could just get anything done. We did it right <laughs> away. Now we're big. So suddenly we've moved our slider down. Yeah. And I say there's a natural reason for that. The reason it's tilted downward toward the predictability side is that other people in the organization want everybody in the organization wants control. So you have this desire for control that pulls your slider down, that you have to be consciously moving it up so that you're moving toward productivity. And you can do that unless you're somebody like NASA, right, where you really do have to get in the rocket ship. And if Mars, if you don't launch at this exact moment, Mars won't be there, right? So there are <laughs> cases where that kind of planning is absolutely necessary. Almost none of us are in that circumstance, right? NASA wants to phone me. I'll, I'll consult with them for sure. But most of my clients, 99% of those 175 companies that I've worked with, they don't need that kind of planning. What they need is really rapid feedback. They need to be in the Starship Enterprise. And so what I tell them to do and help them to do is to move that slider up and move it away from the desire for control. So they have less control. They have less certainty. But man, are they productive? Yeah, I guess that's the dream, right? Like going in there, showing them the evidence, showing them your work, showing them what happens when you go to this newer approach or newer for them approach and getting them to take their hand off the tiller to some extent. But are there any specific techniques that you use, not necessarily with the technologists, but with those non-technology stakeholders to uh, actually help land that and get them to think a little bit less about control? Because that's the constant kind of argument that, well, we just can't persuade them. Like, So how do you persuade them, aside from just showing them the examples of your past work? Well, the main thing to do and the thing that I teach people over and over again to do is to have much better conversations. Yes. Because when you say, look, we can't convince them, you're right, you can't convince them. But there's a tremendous opportunity to collaborate with them in a completely different way. So for example, the same person that I was just uh, telling you about that I was just coaching, one of his problems is that other people in the organization don't trust him. And I have a method for increasing trust, which actually is based on test-driven development. Oh, there so you it's go. Test-driven development for people. And there's a method that you can use for building trust. So you structure your conversation almost as a series of tests 
And as you pass more of the tests, you're building more and more trust. So those are the types of methods that you can use as an engineer to build that kind of trust outside the technology organization. And then you don't have to convince anybody. Oh, there you go. It's inception. You're trying to make it that they had the idea first and or something like that. But it's not quite that manipulative, but uh, we can go into it if you want. <laughs> well, let's, we'll talk about that in a minute. But before we talk about that, you also talk about using action science to help achieve this within organizations. Now, I'll admit that I'm not a big expert on action science. So in a nutshell... Nobody is. Nobody's ever heard of it. <laughs> well, that's the thing. So what is action science then? And how does it help so, in the broadest sense of the word? There was this brilliant guy at Yale, I think, called Chris Argyris, who invented this whole mechanism of having better conversations and then buried it in a lot of academic journals. So his work is almost <laughs> Ill illegible. You just can't make any sense of it. But the ideas are brilliant. And test-driven development for people is my update for a technology-focused audience of a method he used called the ladder of inference. And you can go read about the ladder of inference on various websites um, describing how he used it. But his original work goes way beyond that. So there's a whole philosophy, there's a whole method of improving your conversations. My co-author run um, conversational dojos where we practice these techniques where you get better at them. They're not natural, they're not obvious. But when you use them, you suddenly have a very different interaction with people around you. They don't have to change. It's not necessarily they also have to read the book. They also have to use the methods. But in fact, when you have, say, a trust-building conversation of the kind I was just describing, you alone can increase the trust, the information, passing the um, value of your interaction with those people. And this is something you can learn. This is a skill you can practice, just like you would go to a, a coding dojo and improve your, uh, your ability with Rust. Yep. You can do the same with your conversations. Well, let's talk about conversations then. So you wrote that book. I think it came out a couple of years ago in 2020, or at least the edition that I saw on Amazon. Yep. So Agile Conversations, which says that it can help you transform your conversation and transform your company culture. That's right. Now, some engineers, not all, but some, are quite famous for their lack of desire to, or they seem to be at least famous for their lack of desire to even have conversations at all, let alone sure. agile ones. So is They your want book... to talk to computers, not people. I understood. <laughs> so is your book aimed at those people, or is it aimed at all engineers, or is it aimed at, I mean, you said that not everyone has to read it, but should the entire organization read it if they really want to be effective at this stuff? Well, my publisher would say so, but uh, you know, if, if, li <laughs> if listeners want a copy, they should just get in touch with me. I'm happy to send out copies. But the point is not that everyone needs to read the book or that everyone needs to have the conversations. There are people who just, that's not their thing. That's not what they want to do. And, and they don't need to. But somebody in the technology organization certainly should be improving their conversations and their interaction with the rest of the business. Because almost every organization I look at, that's very, very poor. Yeah. And of course, product managers like you are the perfect glue for connecting those less social, less interested in people engineers with the rest of the organization. Too many organizations don't even have that person, much less have any uh, focus on improving those interactions. But it's crucial. If you do that, you wind up connecting the engineers and the engineering work to profit, and that's when you really unlock the value. No, 100%. I'm a big fan of bringing engineers into those product conversations. I gave a talk yesterday on how engineers should be front and center in all the different parts of the product journey as well so from discovery through to solutioning and design all of that stuff like i think it's really important the book itself though talks about various different types of conversation it talks about the trust conversation which you just touched about the fear conversation the why conversation the commitment conversation the accountability conversation there's lots of different types of conversations is this 
like a step-by-step guide or is this something that you really dip into to try and work out how to have certain types of conversations when those conversations come up like would you read this front to back or is it more of a kind of a, a playbook for individual situations people use it different ways and it's it's uh, amenable to all those ways so for example if you want to really master the techniques and practice in dojos practice your conversations improve the way that you build trust and reduce fear and involve people and, and collaborate with them through joint design then you can read every word of the book, go through all the exercises, do all the practice items, um, and uh, that, that works great for the people who are willing to put in a lot of work. There are other people who read it and they say, boy, this was a nice book. This was fun. Th- those people who do the hard work, they say, man, this was tough. I really had to work hard at it. <laughs> That's good. I don't mind that usage, but it's also fine to say, man, I got this tough conversation coming. I, I know that they are, are not committed. The, the commitment's not there. I haven't involved them. I haven't included this, uh, the, the data science folks in the, the conversation up to this point, and I want to fix that. Well, then you could dive into the commitment conversation, read some examples from life. We have uh, real conversations that have really happened, and we analyze them, and we say how you could improve them, and that can help you in that tactical moment. So you can use it any way you like. Well, there you go. But how has that book gone down then with some of the technical people that its main audience like i'm assuming you've had some feedback some personal feedback or even amazon reviews like do you feel that the ideas within the book and the kind of value proposition of the book you know having better conversations getting engineers involved in the business like do you think that that's something that's really landed and had a really positive effect well i I think it's had a positive effect on the people who've taken it seriously worked hard at it and made improvements and those are the kinds of people that i coach and and who really get benefit from techniques like test-driven development for people there are a whole class of other people who, who just kind of want to get something that's nice. And they want to just feel that uh, they've, they've read something and that they, they're not actually <laughs> implementing anything uh, that, they, that they read. I'm glad to have those readers. I'm, I'm happy with them. The problem is that what I haven't seen is some massive revolution in how people have conversations. So I don't think my consulting business is uh, in any trouble. We haven't changed everyone <laughs> to uh, this kind of trust-building, fear-reducing uh, attitude and approach yet. And I don't expect to, because this is very hard work. It's not what we were uh, kind of evolutionarily guided to. Uh, this isn't how we survived in, in the, the wild uh, when we were being hunted by lions. But it's <laughs> vital now that we have uh, huge knowledge teams that are building things like, as you say, the metaverse. No, absolutely. Well, hopefully a few more people will pick it up after this. But one thing I saw in the book, which did interest me, given it is for techies and talking about a lot about commitment and accountability type conversations. and in the Agile community, at least, and I'm thinking of a few people specifically that have kind of come up with this commentary, there's some pushback on the terms accountability and commitment, and the suggestion that they're almost punitive concepts, like really... They're used badly. Well, yeah, exactly. Sort of hangovers from the old Taylorist management days and just a way to bash teams over the head. Yep. And you do touch on this in the book itself as well, but do you think there's any way or there's any place for commitment and accountability conversations in this truly agile, empowered world that we're all aiming for? It's vital, but done the right way. So the, the problem is that if you, if you push the tilted slider too far down and you're looking for unwarranted predictability yep. and you're looking for huge amounts of control from outside the tech team, then what you wind up doing is creating exactly the negative environment you just described. What I tell people is uh, you're, uh, I don't let my coaching clients refer to holding people accountable. I make them talk about being accountable because it comes from uh, the word account comes from when people would count things. They would count the taxes actually for the English king and they would count them out in a certain way. Uh, You can read a manual on how they did this. 
Yeah. And their accounting was, I went to these people who lived in these places and I extracted taxes from them and here's the taxes free and they'd actually count out the pennies. So what you want to be doing is actively giving an account of what the technology team did and how that matched the things that the team committed to do. What we don't want is the salespeople saying, okay, here's what we're going to commit you to do, and then we're going to hold you to account for delivering that. That never ends well, as as all of the listeners, I'm sure, know. (laughs) But if you were to be part of the conversation, if you were to jointly design something that you're committing to do, you commit to experiments and imperfect indicators along the way that tell you whether you're making that progress, then you can account to, say, Mark Zuckerberg and say, Mark, we've been trying out this metaverse thing. And man, people would really like to have legs. They're kind of annoyed by the fact that the the avatars don't have legs. And so we're working hard on something we didn't expect, right? The Starship Enterprise, we're changing our direction. We're working on legs now. And uh, we're, we're seeing an improvement in conversion. We'll know more next week. If you're having that kind of conversation, if you're being accountable in that way, then you're very closely tied to profit. You're uh, adjusting the direction that you're going in all the time, and you have the commitment and buy-in and engagement of the people who jointly designed it with you, rather than this kind of externally imposed deadline, which is all about uh, increasing control and reducing trust. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm always going to be a big fan of going that way and being able to collaborate your way to success. I think, you know, the one of the things I've reflected on a lot over the last few years is this, this, this simple fact that we should all consider ourselves on the same team, right? But I have worked in organizations where the sales team are very antagonistic towards the engineering team and, and obviously vice versa because it feels like they're just from different worlds and they just have no coordination or shared values or anything at all. They're just all being forced into different directions and it just feels like a really toxic atmosphere and one that we should all hopefully be able to change. But let me say something there because uh, there are a lot of people who are going to be really resonating with what you're saying, Jason. They're going to say, Yep, that's exactly what my organization's like. Isn't it terrible? Yep. Here I am listening to the podcast and hearing that other people are in this situation. Since it's so hopeless, I'm just glad that there's somebody who's um, uh, confirming my hopelessness. No, they've got to change it though, right? The thing I'm here to do is to say that you individually can change this. Yep. I have this radical idea that you don't have to sit there and say, well, this is how it is. No, 100%. The rest of the organization doesn't have to change. You can do something different. Now, there's not enough time in this podcast to go into it in depth, but um, <laughs> I'd encourage people to, to find out more. Buy the book. Yeah, uh, the book, get in touch on my website, lots of ways. You can do something about this. And so the next time you hear somebody saying, well, you can't do anything, they change their minds all the time. They never yep. uh, listen to us. They impose the deadlines. Tell them, please, that there's a crazy guy named Squirrel who says that they can do something about it. And that's all I ask you to do is that recognize that there is something you can do. You can choose to do it or not, and the organization can choose to listen or not. But there are things that you can do, such as test-driven development for people, that make a huge immediate difference to the profit of the company. No, 100%. I'm a big fan of the concept that you should try, and not necessarily to meet in the middle, but you don't have to meet at one side or the other, right? You need to try and find some common ground and work where you can. So 100% agree with that. So let's just assume then that we've got the engineer, the tech team, talking to the rest of the business and everyone's contributing to the strategy, everyone's aligned and moving forward as a team. This fantastic utopian Star Trek type future that we're all talking about. But then you talked about potentially the fact that you could communicate that strategy using a napkin. Yes. Now, I've worked for companies that have apparently been started off the back of a napkin. So obviously Mm -hmm. that is an approach that has legs. And I don't know if Miro has a napkin plugin. So like whether we can use that in these. You you, uh, just make a small box. It has to be physically, physically the size of a napkin put a little coffee stain on it. But what's the idea specifically around a napkin? I mean, 
Obviously, I'm all for simplicity, but isn't it a bit too simple to just put everything in that one little box? Well, one of the key things is that your napkin strategy should be wrong. Aha. So what you want is to have something that very clearly communicates a mostly right, but probably uh, uh, certainly wrong in certain aspects idea, which is easily communicated. So pick anything that's got a small idea. We talked about Musk before, and we talked about rockets, right? If you ask anybody at SpaceX, why are you here? Why did you get up? Why did you come to work this morning? The reason is we want to get humans to Mars. Maybe Elon should stay there once he gets there. I'm not sure, but (laughs) we want to get people to Mars. That's the goal. And when you can keep people aligned to that, it's much simpler and easier to then have all the conversations you need to have in order to achieve that goal. Now, that goal is not right. It's not true they're only trying to get to Mars. They're also trying to make a profit for the shareholders. They're trying to improve technology for all kinds of space operations. Mars isn't the only outcome. But having something very simple like that shows that you have an understanding that transcends um, you know, the 70-page 500 slide um, de- definition of your strategy <laughs> and gets it in a, a compressed form that shows your understanding and gets everyone on board. And that's why a napkin is a very good way to summarize many ideas and why exactly as you say, many startups have started with ideas on napkins. Napkins or beer mats or whatever other... Whatever was to hand, but small. Whatever other right? small square object with the basic writability that they can find. Compression shows understanding. There you go. But if we go back then to communication and conversation, I mean, you and I have talked in passing about constructive conflict, and I know that's something that you're keen to, you're you're saying that that's a a good idea. And and there's Mm -hmm. been lots of talks out there. I remember Steve Jobs doing his thing about pebbles in the rock grinder and getting the shiny pebbles out. And obviously, if you think about your book, we could say, well, part of that could be the trust conversation, you know, like having the psychological safety to have open effectively conflict but in a controlled fashion and Mm -hmm. seeing what great shiny pebbles you get out of it but in many companies that's not the case as we all know Mm -hmm. so how have you managed to help foster an environment in the companies that you have worked with where they can actually have that creative tension without just actually going toxic and shouting at each other well i certainly agree with not being toxic I think shouting is probably not usually the most productive way to to get your conflict out. (laughs) But whichever method you use, you want conflict. And you should be steering for more conflict in a productive way. And when you're measuring, is my team being effective? Am I getting creative technological innovations into live production so that users get benefit, people pay me more, I have more profit? If that's your measure, which it should be, then you want to be looking at how you create more conflict. You should be steering toward additional conflict. And the danger, the problem is that because conflict is unpleasant, humans tend to avoid it. Yep. And they say, oh, man, all right, I'll delay the conversation. Maybe they'll realize themselves. Maybe they'll figure it out. I can avoid the conflict. But that's like avoiding eating your broccoli or um, avoiding uh, having a run <laughs> in the morning, right? Those things aren't necessarily pleasant to do, but they create tremendous benefit for you. So you can do this. And that's the main message I have is you don't have to wait for the organization to bring in a consultant like me to make a big uh, organizational change. You tomorrow, today, this afternoon, can have a difficult conversation and create conflict, which then leads to better outcomes. You can do that. But in some cases where you maybe, as you touched on, can't have that constructive tension and you can't speak up, you almost get an atmosphere of toxic positivity instead where any doubt or dissent is seen as a character flaw or somehow disruptive and you're not on the you're not on the team, you're not you're sure. not on message. Yep. 
How many times have you gone into a company and seen that as a kind of a base state that you've that you've walked into? Oh, many, many times. And that's something that I have to help the organization change. And sometimes I can't, very few cases, uh, I will say, but in a very few cases, I haven't been able to help the organization and I stop and I say, I'm not the right person for you. I can't help you make this change. But the vast majority of the time, what I find is that by changing the conversations, by changing the, uh, the approach that one person takes, then that can cause a productive conflict and a ripple effect that really changes how the whole organization functions. I see that over and over and over again. And people may not believe me. You might say, Squirrel, you're nuts. I don't think that's really <laughs> happening. That could never happen in my organization. My challenge to you is get in touch with me. Talk to me about how you could do that. Read the book, whatever method makes sense to you. But if you give these methods a, a fair trial, you will see that it's called action science for a reason. You can do experiments in which you have the productive conversation, you have the conflict, and you see what the results are. I guarantee to you that you will see, uh, you will certainly not be bored, as you probably are today, <laughs> with the toxic positivity. My co-author likes to say, you know, if you're in a meeting that's boring, announce that it's boring. It will no longer be boring. <laughs> oh, I can think of a few where that would have ruffled a few feathers. But they need ruffling. That's what you need. And it'd be much better if somebody went to Zuck and said, hey, people aren't <laughs> buying this metaverse thing. And not only do they not like having no legs, but they think it's stupid and they'd rather just phone someone. It'd be much better for Zuck to hear that and for them to have a good old discussion about it and to come up with a better idea than for everyone to say, metaverse, greatest idea ever. Let's build uh, <laughs> uh, 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 hundreds of teams building this vision of Zuck's. I'll bow down at his feet. That's not helpful. <laughs> not at all. But Aside from buying the book and aside from getting you to come in and help them, what's one thing you'd recommend any engineer or tech person, maybe even a product person if they're in that sort of organization, one thing that they can do today to start down the path of having more constructive conversations? Pick something that terrifies you. Pick something that uh, is a, a conflict or a, a difficulty or an, a, a way of interacting that's not working and go and make that discussable with the person or the group or the team that is in that situation. So when uh, you're thinking to yourself, man, they, they just ask me to do new things all the time, we're changing our minds, and this isn't working, you go find the team that's generating that and you say, where's this coming from? Tell me more about it. It's not working for me. If somebody is adding people to your team when you don't need them, and you can't train them and you can't keep up, I've got people in that situation, then you go <laughs> find whoever in HR keeps hiring additional people and putting them on your team, and you find out why they're doing that. The question why leads to tremendous insight, um, but it's far too threatening because the answer might be, well, because you told me to, or because I thought this was better for you, or because I uh, understood that this is the company policy. All of those lead to other actions than this person's an idiot and making my life difficult, which is the natural, easy way to go <laughs> and which doesn't lead to productive improvement in your profit. Well, that's a fundamental attribution over there, right? They're basically just sitting there and assigning motives to people when they don't exactly. have the whole story. So. Definitely want to push against that. But where can people find you after this if they want to have a conversation with you of any type or find out more about your book or just chat about action science or how to make their teams insanely profitable? Yeah, well, there are two places to do that. And one you can do as long as you remember my name. Uh, and that's at DouglasSquirrel.com, where you've been reading from and, and seeing lots of material on what I do. Yep. I also run a completely free community called Squirrel Squadron. And that's at SquirrelSquadron.com. And I do events every week that are completely free. Some are in person, some are online, and those uh, I have interesting guests who come and talk to me. I have 
discussions this week we're talking today we're talking about blasting through barriers and how to overcome problems and we're uh, drawing ideas from the treatment of paranoid schizophrenics because it turns out that's terribly relevant to oh, wow. uh, how how you break through barriers at your work so there's uh, free material uh, on squirrelsquadron.com and there's lots more about me at douglassquirrel.com well there you go i'll make sure to link that all into the show notes and hopefully you get a few people coming over heading in your direction and learning how to have a few more productive conversations well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously, really appreciate you spending some of your valuable time to talk about some meaty subjects. Obviously, we'll stay in touch. But yeah, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Jason. Really appreciate it. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.